Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Michelle Teo, and I'm the Executive Director at the Middle East Institute. I want to welcome all of you to the Institute on this very, very rainy Wednesday. Um, I really appreciate the audience that we've got here today. Uh, let me begin by first introducing my colleague, uh, Dr. Jean-Luc Saman, who is a Senior Research Fellow at this Institute. I'll then go on to talk a little bit about the book. Uh, before I exercise my moderator rights and ask Jean-Luc five questions uh, that essentially cover the book and gives him an opportunity to talk a little bit about the book that he has written and some of his perspectives. So let me start by introducing Jean-Luc. Um, he's a senior research fellow here and uh, he holds a PhD in political science from the University of Paris, Paris uh, Panthéon-Sorbonne. His area of research um, includes Middle Eastern security affairs, in particular the reforms of Gulf armed forces, Israel's evolving military strategy, and the evolution of non-state warfare in the region. He's had quite a varied career, and it's actually an interesting career. As someone who herself is not from an academic background, um, it has been refreshing to actually meet someone like Jean-Luc, uh, who first started out as a policy analyst at the French Ministry of Defence, uh, before moving on to become an advisor at the NATO Defense College, and finally serving as an associate professor at the UAE National Defense College, uh, which was his last job before he came and joined us in, at, at the National University of Singapore. He's authored five other books, and he's written several articles and monographs for various international academic and policy journals. Today, we're here to talk about his latest book, which is New Military Strategies in the Gulf, which was published uh, in August this year um, and really looks at the evolving defense policies of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. The structure of the book, the focus of the book, of course, is military reforms. The book structure, is, it's an easy book to read, by the way, because I did read this book. Uh, it has eight chapters, and he has actually gone through quite systematically to trace the history and the evolution of the military reform policies and actions that have been undertaken by the three countries that we look at. Uh, one is politics. The first chapter looks at the politics of military reform. The second looks at the policies that were launched. Third chapter looks at the reform of national military industries. And the fourth looks at the diversification of defense partnerships. In his fifth chapter, he addresses the ability of these countries to project power before going on in the sixth chapter to look at the impact on society. Uh, his last two chapters cover the impact on multilateral arrangements. You'd have let, read quite a bit in the news about how they are actually diversifying their, their defense relationships and the impact this is having on other existing relationships that they have. In his concluding chapter, he takes a look at Yemen. And I think in the case of Yemen, you really look at how everything comes together and you look and you can see and assess for yourself what has been the impact and the uh, efficacy of the reform process in each of these countries. So that's essentially the, the book. Um, it's very it's a well thought out, uh, thoughtful and insightful book. It's a very easy read. Uh, and I think it's something that's worth you all considering. You may not agree with everything that Jean-Luc said, make conclusions that he comes to us, his assessments in the book, but it is worth a read and it does get you start to start thinking about um, what is going on in the Gulf states today. So I have five questions for Jean-Luc, which, I, by the way, I'm not catching him off guard. I didn't give him the questions earlier on, so he's prepared for the answers. <laughs> one, I've asked him, because one of the things when you read this book is he talks about strategic autonomy. And so I've asked him, what does this mean? 
And what does this mean vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates? The second, what has been or what was the impetus for the changes, for the reform of in all these three countries of their military and in of their strategy? The third question I ask him is, how different is this from previous attitudes to defense? And here was very interesting to read the book because historically there has been a different perception and this has evolved over time. And in response to what has been developing, not just within the Gulf region, but uh, and the region, the region around the Gulf, but also in the wider international arena. The fourth question I ask him is, how do the three countries differ from each other in terms of changes and progress? And I ask this question because in his book, Jean-Luc sets Saudi Arabia slightly apart from Qatar and from the UAE. And so I wanted to know why, how, how does, what, in setting these apart, what was he looking at and how does he see that they differ from each other in terms of changes and progress? And the last question is, how have the three fared today? So at this point, I'm going to hand over to Jean-Luc, let him take over. We're not, as you can see, doing a traditional sort of, you know, Jean-Luc shows PowerPoint slides and then we talk for about 30 to 45 minutes. We decided to take this slightly different approach so that he can actually talk about these, these different uh, aspects or these questions that I've asked. And then um, I really would like to throw the floor open to all of you to ask the questions that you want to ask. Okay, so Jean-Luc, I hand over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Michel, uh, for the for the kind introduction. It's a it's a great pleasure to uh, uh, to to be presenting the book uh, here uh, at the, the Middle East Institute. And uh, the the challenge uh, with any book talk is that most of the people obviously uh, didn't read the book, so they have to uh, understand through the, the the content of the discussion uh, from the speaker and the moderator how to. Um, to ask questions about the book, uh, but the the five question five questions uh, you, uh, you raised, uh, I think, are a good starting point to uh, explain the origin of the book, uh, the way I uh, I actually uh, did the research, the investigation for the book, and uh, the uh, conclusion, or at least the conclusion so far uh, on the topic. And strategic autonomy, the concept of strategic autonomy, is the perfect way to. Um, to look at uh, the the topic uh, from the beginning, uh, because the 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 reason why I started looking at uh, this topic at the uh, military strategies in the Gulf uh, that started more or less uh, ten years ago. I, as you said at the beginning, I, I joined NATO. I was an advisor in two thousand eleven. Joined NATO when the UAE and Qatar for the first time, were joining uh, the NATO operations in Libya. That was quite unprecedented to have two uh, Gulf countries that were barely seen as credible in terms of armed forces joining a major NATO operation. Uh, Four years later, the the same countries were joining Saudi Arabia uh, for a coalition to intervene in Yemen, and this time on their own, not even with uh, a NATO EU or UN uh, umbrella. So this was a move forward in terms of military ambitions. And so, and we've seen that in other, uh, in other places, uh, the, the contribution, for instance, of a country like the UAE for the, uh, the uh, uh, early phases of the uh, coalition against uh, the Islamic State. So there were uh, a lot of 
places, uh, examples where these countries were clearly uh, raising their ambitions, raising their profile in the military domain. Uh, and that led me to uh, question the reason, the purpose of that. The, the idea of strategic autonomy uh, is not something that started in the Gulf, but this is a concept that uh, emerged actually during the Cold War that we saw in Asia, in Latin America, uh, but that grew uh, or came back in earnest in the last decade, mostly uh, in Europe and now also uh, in uh, the Gulf. The, the reason for that was uh, the, that countries that were heavily relying on the U.S., uh, for their security, started wondering what happens if the U.S. leaves. That was, uh, in the Gulf, a great concern starting in the Obama years, and that uh, increased uh, after that with Trump uh, and the new um, transactional approach of U.S. commitments to the region. So as a result, these countries started thinking we need to uh, uh, increase our own um, agency to uh, to be able to uh, decide on our foreign policy on our own terms. And the most concrete uh, way you translate that is at the military level. Uh, the Gulf states had already a lot of economic resources thanks to their oil, gas, energy resources. But before that, in terms of military, uh, this was quite modest. So in the last 10 years, suddenly there was a major push uh, for uh, translating that idea of strategic autonomy at the military level. Uh, that took several um, several aspects, uh, and the, the book uh, details uh, each of these aspects of so the governance of the, the military, trying to make uh, the armed forces more efficient, more rationalized, uh, the, the military training and education with a lot of reforms in that domain, defense industry with the idea of building uh, or investing into local uh, defense industries. The idea that uh, these countries, uh, for the most part until today, rely heavily, if not only, on Western and in particular U.S. military platforms, whether we're talking about fighter jets, uh, naval ships, uh, or uh, ground uh, vehicles. So they are trying as much as possible now to localize uh, their defense industry with this idea again, that this is the way to decrease uh, your dependence on external uh, security providers. So this leads to the, the, your second question, the, uh, why uh, this, uh, this impetus, this motivation for uh, strategic autonomy? Uh, I briefly mentioned the uh, U.S. factor, uh, the uh, the fact that this started uh, in the late 2000s uh, and the, the last decade, the 2010s, with the Obama administration. The idea that the that U.S. was more reluctant to engage, to uh, invest into the security of the Middle East. Uh, but in addition to that, these three countries, uh, so the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, also uh, uh, increased their ambitions after the so-called Arab Spring. So 2011, if you remember, we had a wave of revolutions in several countries. And the Gulf states, uh, uh, these three uh, Gulf states uh, decided also 
to project their own uh, agenda in uh, in this crisis. So we saw them getting involved uh, financially, militarily, diplomatically in each of these uh, these crises. Uh, so we saw that in Libya, we saw that in Syria, we saw that also in Egypt, and we see that until today also in Tunisia. So there was the combination, let's say, of regional development, the fact that uh, Arab countries were uh, facing revolutions, uh, the fact that the previous center of Arab politics, which was considered to be the um, uh, to be Egypt and the Levant, moved, migrated to uh, the Gulf, making these countries uh, the center of Arab politics and the global level with this idea of the U.S. Um, uh, decline or at least U.S. growing disinterest uh, with Middle Eastern affairs. How different is it then uh, from the past? And something that uh, I, I explain in the book is that this is not the first time that Gulf states talk about mili military reforms. And these are countries that have been spending a lot on uh, armed forces uh, even before uh, the 2010s. So uh, actually the, the first major uh, surge of uh, defense expenditures in the region was in the 90s after the uh, invasion of Kuwait, uh, when uh, those countries considered they needed to invest uh, uh, much more on their defense. The, the difference this time is, I would say, that in the past, uh, the, um, there were two things. First, uh, the, the, the central assumption was uh, that uh, the US uh, was the main and only security provider to the region. Uh, not the exactly only, there was also uh, uh, British and French uh, security agreements uh, for those countries. But at the end of the day, they considered that the US was the primary security provider. Uh, and as the result, development of the military forces uh, was not seen as, uh, in a way, uh, driving uh, the, uh, the biggest priority for national security. Uh, in a in a normal environment, when you invest in your armed forces, this is uh, first and foremost about uh, your own security. Uh, the reason why you build armed forces in theory is to uh, protect your territory. In the case of the Gulf states, they consider that their security had to be tied to the U.S., uh, that this was a security interest of the U.S. Uh, to have the Gulf uh, stability. Uh, so that that was uh, the reason after the um, the growing reluctance of the U.S. to intervene in the region that they consider we can no longer work this way. Um, that's a first element. The second element is that for a long time there was suspicion from the ruling families vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the armed forces, uh, and that's a classic uh, case of. Uh, uh, the uh, the rulers uh, afraid that investing into the military was investing in a potential for a coup. Uh, that if you have strong militaries, that leads to uh, the military playing a political role, and then they uh, they will topple uh, your regime. 
Uh, and there was some historical basis for that. In the, the 50s, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, faced its own uh, failed attempt of a coup. Uh, and that that played a role in uh, in the, the uh, a long tradition of uh, Saudi uh, suspicion vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the armed forces. In the case of Qatar, that also uh, played a role in the sense that the armed forces uh, or some parts of the armed forces in the 90s uh, went against uh, the former Emir, so Hamad, who's the father of the current uh, ruler of Qatar. So very quickly on that, because not everyone is familiar, but in Qatar, you have uh, a bloodless uh, coup that happens in uh, 1995, where the emir, Hamad, uh, replaces uh, his brother. Uh, as a result, you have uh, some parts of the military uh, that tries to uh, remove Hamad, the new ruler, from power. They fail, but as a result, Hamad, who's, who stays in power between uh, 1995 and 2013, when, he when he's uh, replaced by his son, who's on the picture uh, with the suit, um, so Hamad had uh, naturally uh, a, a suspicion vis-a-vis -vis the military. Why would you empower, what would you strengthen the military if you think that this, uh, this body, this organization could actually uh, organize a coup against you? This is less the case uh, at the moment. The military now has been more the uh, agent of the ruler rather than the competitor to the ruler. Uh, so that's uh, why it's different now from the past. The, the, uh, the fourth question with regards to the three countries, and that's, that's the challenge. Uh, I wanted to um, look at three countries. I didn't want to have a monograph on one or two countries. And I've, I thought that these are the three countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar, that have been the most ambitious in the last 10 years in terms of uh, foreign policy. Uh, and which have been, in a way, uh, the most vocal about this ambition regarding strategic autonomy. Now, the fact that they have, let's say, this similar ambition doesn't mean that they had similar strategies. From the beginning, uh, the first uh, reality check is the difference in terms of the uh, geography, demography, the economy of these three countries. Uh, there's one big regional power here, which is Saudi Arabia. And any discussion on Gulf states or Gulf politics should always keep that in mind, that we have a tendency to, to look at these states as if they were on par. But the, you have Saudi Arabia, which is uh, the, the regional powerhouse, and at a much lower level, these other states. That doesn't mean that Saudi Arabia is the most advanced uh, country in the region when it comes to the military reform. Uh, the, the country that has uh, been the first to implement these reforms uh, was and is until today the UAE. So, uh, and one of the main reasons probably is the fact that you had uh, and you have Mohammed bin Zayed, who's on the left uh, on the picture. Uh, so Mohammed bin, bin Zayed, who's now the president uh, of the United Arab Emirates, who comes, who's uh, first and foremost from the ruling family of Abu Dhabi, but also has a, a military background and spent 
uh, the first decades of his career in the military. So arguably, from the three uh, leaders here, he's the one with the most advanced military experience. And the UAE military reform started earlier in the, in the late 2000s. And as a result, if you look at, uh, uh, let's say, military education, military industry, uh, military readiness, uh, they are more advanced than the others. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, I would say, in the second position. It would be unfair in a sense to, to say that uh, Saudi Arabia is slower, given the fact that Saudi Arabia is much bigger. Uh, the UAE forces represent roughly 60,000 troops. Saudi Arabia has about 260,000 troops. So any reform uh, that size is always going to be more challenging. Uh, in addition to that, the geography, the social fabric uh, of Saudi Arabia is much more challenging. Uh, so Saudi Arabia started the, the, these reforms uh, in 2016. Uh, in 2015, 2016, and these were closely associated with the rise of Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman, contrary to uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, doesn't have a military background, but when his father uh, became the king and appointed uh, his son, uh, MBS, uh, deputy crown prince, he gave him the portfolio of military affairs. Two months after becoming the defense minister uh, of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman launched the operation in Yemen. Uh, so keep in mind that this is a new uh, uh, prince, a deputy crown prince that becomes defense minister, doesn't really have uh, military experience, and launches the most ambitious intervention uh, possible for his country just two months after that. Uh, in the meantime, he also uh, launched uh, reforms in terms of governance uh, of the, the joint command of the Saudi armed forces, military, military education, defense industry, and so on. Uh, this is, like a lot of reforms in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, a major move with a lot of ambitions in terms of the scales. It's hard to uh, assess how far they can go, definitely not as far as what they announced. Uh, but again, uh, if we keep in mind the fact that this is uh, a big country and with a, a lot of reforms being uh, launched at the same time, uh, it should be uh, considered as uh, very significant. Finally, Qatar uh, would be in the third position. Uh, first, because uh, as I mentioned, the previous ruler of Qatar, Hamad, uh, wasn't really versed into military affairs. So until 2013, there wasn't a very serious uh, military culture in Qatar. It's only with uh, the rise of his son, so Tamim, who becomes uh, the emir in 2013, and who had previously military background, uh, although he was quite young. I think he, he became the emir and he was 30 or 31, so a short military experience. Uh, but still, he very quickly launched uh, all uh, the military reforms, uh, military education with new uh, military colleges, the defense industry, uh, the reform of the, 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 the Ministry of Defense. In addition to these, to this change of culture with the leader, the new leader in 2013, uh, the real game changer in Qatar 
is 2017 when you have the blockade. So 2017, 5th June of uh, 2017, Qatar uh, finds itself uh, contained by its neighbors. You have Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE that decide to close their airspace and maritime space to Qatar. So, and in the days following the, the announcement of the blockade, you have also strong fears in Doha that this will be followed by an invasion that this will be followed by a military intervention uh, from Saudi Arabia uh, to Qatar. And that played a major role in the Qatari strategic uh, mindset. That's a clear shift in the way uh, Qataris talk about strategic autonomy. One of the first decisions that they made after that was a frenzy of uh, new uh, military orders. They ordered in the months after that Typhoon fighter jets from the uh, British, uh, Rafale fighter jets uh, from uh, the uh, the French, and the same thing from the Americans. So suddenly they considered that they needed to uh, invest much more in their uh, in their military uh, institutions. So that's uh, also a, a, a major change in the uh, in the case of Qatar. But because it's uh, because it came much later. Uh, obviously, this is uh, at a earlier stage in terms of military achievements uh, than the two other uh, countries. Now, this leads to your, your, your final question, question, the current state of those reforms. And as I said, this these are very ambitious, uh, uh, ambitious um, uh, projects. Gulf countries, usually when they have um, uh, reforms, in the military as well as in economy or culture, they are not modest. They, uh, they like to brag about uh, uh, very uh, lofty goals. But if we take, uh, let's say, the, the Yemen war as one of the first indicators of the military effectiveness, uh, this is uh, a painful uh, reality check uh, for uh, Gulf states. There's differences in the way uh, each country uh, operated in Yemen. Uh, I mean, this is a, a conflict that has been ongoing for uh, more than eight years. The UAE has performed much better uh, than uh, Saudi Arabia uh, for different reasons. And if necessary, we can go back to that in more details during the, the Q&A. Uh, Qatar was uh, uh, very, uh, very modestly involved. Uh, it was involved in the first two years of the conflict, just deployed uh, a small uh, number of troops, uh, and after the blockade, uh, obviously left the coalition. Uh, but the war in Yemen is an indicator that the ultimately there's a there's a disconnect between the the the, the, the military strategy the. Uh, objective uh, of uh, Gulf states for their military and uh, the uh, uh, the realization, the, uh, the implementation of that strategy on the battlefield. There are other indicators that call uh, for, I would say, uh, a sobering assessment. And for instance, on defense industry, it's one thing to say uh, you want to localize your defense industry. You want to uh, have your own uh, platforms, your own military uh, uh, military uh, systems. But 
there's also uh, economic constraints. And uh, that's where uh, you, you reach the limits of strategic autonomy, because not so many countries on Earth today can afford to have their own defense industry, uh, because it's a very costly um, uh, initiative. So what the Gulf states uh, are able to do at the moment is to be uh, autonomous on some niche capabilities. Uh, and the UAE, which is more advanced on that, has been uh, more uh, credible, for instance, on uh, building armored vehicles or niche capabilities like UAVs or cyber capabilities. But at the end of the day, when it comes to uh, the most uh, expensive, the most complex platforms such as uh, Corvettes uh, or uh, let's say fighter jets, they still rely on their traditional partners. Uh, and we see there the, uh, the, the, the friction or the contradiction between, let's say these big objectives of being autonomous, uh, of being more independent vis-a-vis -vis the Americans, for instance, and the fact that at the end of the day, these countries still rely heavily on the U.S. for uh, their military equipment. That puts the U.S. in a sense in a uh, in an advantageous position because the U.S. can put pressures on these countries. And that's the reason, for instance, the U.S. puts pressure on the UAE, uh, telling the UAE, you want to be more independent in your foreign policy, you want to have uh, ties with China, well, in this case, we will not sell you uh, the F-35 uh, fighter jet. So that's where you see the, the limits of this uh, strategic autonomy uh, ambition. I'll stop here. Um, I'm sorry that I talked uh, way too much, uh, but uh, happy to uh, continue in the discussion. No, I don't think you talked too much. That was actually very interesting. I want to come back to look at two different things, because in your book, You've got a chapter that looks at the impact on the multilateral arrangements. Um, and then you have a question, uh, a chapter that looks at the societal impact, right? Um, and I thought those would be interesting to go back to, to talk a little bit about uh, before I then open up the, the floor to, to questions. Yeah. Yes, so these are two... Uh two reflections of this evolution of golf uh golf uh, uh defense or strategic uh, ambitions uh with regards to military arrangements in the past it was quite simple in a way you had three main uh players in the region this was the us the uk uh and france which uh, were providing uh defense agreements uh, security arrangements uh, to uh, the gulf states <laughs> In the past 10 years, things got more complex uh, because uh, these uh, states, so, uh, mostly Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, and Qatar, added new partners. Uh, in the case of Qatar, you had suddenly Turkey opening a, a military base uh, in 2014. Uh, that military base actually was one of the reasons why uh, Saudi Arabia uh, implemented the, the blockade in 2015, uh, six, uh, 17, sorry. Uh, you have also military arrangements uh, with India involving, for instance, uh, maritime security uh, uh, exchange or counterterrorism cooperation. And maybe more importantly, you have China. Uh, 
uh, which is a newcomer in terms of uh, military relations. China was barely on the radar uh, 10 years ago. Uh, it's still relatively modest in terms of the scale, in terms of the volume of what China does in the region. But China is more and more involved in terms of uh, uh, delivering uh, military systems to these countries that most most of the time Western countries do not want to uh, give. For instance, uh, ballistic missiles, uh, UAVs. Uh, and we see now uh, that China and the UAE announced uh, a month ago for the first time their first uh, air drill together. This is, again, something that we would not have seen 10 years ago. And that indicates... Uh, I would say, a new level of confidence that they consider, especially here the UAE, that they can have uh, military arrangements with, with any other country, not just the UA US, uh, but that they are diversifying as much as possible. The other aspect, the social aspect, is a very interesting one. Uh, and because one of the uh, consequences of this ambition was also to introduce national service. Uh, Qatar and the UAE introduced national service in 2013. Saudi Arabia discussed it, but didn't uh, go further. So at the, at the moment, you don't have national service uh, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. But the fact that UAE and Qatar introduced uh, national service uh, changed also the way those countries consider the relation, uh, relationship between, let's say, the citizens and the armed forces. Because in the past, uh, there was this, this perception that the citizens were there uh, mostly uh, to, uh, to be customers of the state, uh, enjoying the, the high level of uh, subsidies of the state without any, uh, uh, any retribution. Uh, here you have a situation where suddenly uh, the young uh, Emiratis, the young Qataris are uh, ordered to go through this process of the national service, which uh, will, will because this is still an ongoing effort, I think it's a generational uh, evolution that we will see, uh, will change uh, their, uh, their mindset on military affairs. Uh, this is important because it's not just a theoretical uh, commitment. In the case of the UAE, we're talking about a country that lost uh, more than 100 uh, soldiers in uh, Yemen. For a country that represents about 1 million citizens, it's, it's significant. Uh, if, uh, uh, if you're uh, in Abu Dhabi, uh, a lot of the people knew families that knew uh, members that were killed in action. Uh, so that's that's uh, uh, also something that that changed the the, the new proximity uh, with uh, the military. Uh, and in the case of the UAE, they introduced uh, what they called Martyrs Day, uh, which is one day, just the day before the national day, which is dedicated to the memory of uh, their soldiers uh, that uh, were killed uh, on the battlefield. And that's also uh, something uh, that uh, was part of this momentum of changing the, the relation between society and the military. One thing uh, which I discuss in the book uh, that can be seen as an issue is, does this lead to militarism? Does this lead to a militaristic society where 
the, 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 the society as a whole and also the government consider that uh, military solutions are the primary uh, option for any uh, foreign policy. Uh, this is something that uh, I think is a significant concern for any country that goes through this process. And in particular, at the moment, uh, I mean, at the moment, we have actually a, a rather regional uh, stability, peaceful environment. But if you have uh, tensions like we saw with the blockade of Qatar coming back, this uh, this could turn uh, societies in a more militaristic uh, behavior or attitude towards uh, foreign policy issues. So that that's a, a big question, I think, uh, for the coming years in the region. Okay, let me see if there's any are there any questions. I'd like to open this out to the floor now. Yes, could you introduce yourself as well, please? I'm Paco, a visiting fellow from RSIS. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I had a question that you mentioned um, foreign involvement and foreign intervention in Yemen. So I have two questions regarding two other Arab countries, mainly Syria and Libya. So I know it's very complicated geopolitical context. We won't have enough time to definitely answer. But uh, so Syria, uh, from my understanding, the three uh, countries. Sorry, the three countries where. Uh, very active uh, in the previous years um, against the Assad government. And from what I've seen recently now, Assad is no more persona non grata in the Gulf. So maybe if you could uh, elaborate a few few details on this. And in Libya, uh, it's, it's very complex, but from what I understand, um, Saudi's Ara uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, um, Abu Dhabi's position would not be aligned. They would probably... Uh, like the rivals in Libya. Yeah. Uh, so the the two uh, conflicts uh, in uh, the two civil wars in uh, in uh, Libya and Syria, I actually cover that in the book in the sense of uh, the proxy war, how Gulf states uh, also in got more and more involved in proxy war uh, in the in the region. In the case of Syria. Uh, Starting, uh, starting and say uh, in two thousand, uh, in the in the end of the first year of the conflict, so two thousand eleven, uh, the most active uh, players on the Gulf side were Saudi Arabia and Qatar, trying to shape uh, the um, the uh, opposition to the Assad regime. Qatar went probably the the further furthest uh, because it it actually played a role in removing uh, uh, the, the Assad regime from the Arab League. Uh, and that's the reason why Qatar has been the most reluctant to restore its ties uh, with the Assad regime. The Syria, as well as Libya, became actually one of the reasons why you had the blockade, uh, because progressively uh, Saudi Arabia uh, perceived that Qatar was uh, sponsoring, supporting mostly Syrian factions that were uh, close to uh, the Muslim Brotherhood or to uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, such as Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, so without getting into all the details, that, that, that was the first phase where they were supporting uh, uh, 
the, the opposition to the Assad regime, but they were not supporting always the same groups. Uh, UE was also supporting, but much, much less. Uh, and it, it deinvested or it disengaged from the Syrian file uh, earlier than the others. Um, so that actually explains why UE very quickly uh, restored its own ties with Assad as soon as I think 2018, 2019. Uh, keeping in mind the fact that the family of Assad was actually all along living in Dubai. So they, uh, they hosted uh, the family, uh, his sister and uh, a lot of the relatives were uh, living in the UAE during the conflict. Uh, so after, I would say, 2016, uh, those countries, most of them, they just disengaged because they, they considered that uh, uh, investing on the opposition was a waste of energy, waste of resources. So for a few years, you have a situation which was uh, uh, in limbo, where uh, the opposition was no longer provided with support. And at the same time, Gulf countries were step by step getting closer uh, or uh, welcoming back uh, Assad. So now you have a situation where uh, those countries uh, restore ties with Assad uh, in the, the most uh, the most remarkable uh, step with that was Assad going back to the Arab League. He will be, or he, sh he might be coming to the COPE uh, in uh, in uh, the UAE uh, in November. Uh, but that comes at a time where you have suddenly uh, new demonstrations in Syria. So things may evolve in the coming uh, weeks on this. With regards to Libya, this is also a situation where there was heavily, there was heavy involvement in past years uh, and then uh, uh, because that failed uh, the UAE in particular disengaged or reduced its uh, its uh, support so to make it short in Libya you had uh, you had uh, a dispute until 2020 on the battlefield between forces of Haftar so Marshal Haftar, who was in the east uh, and uh, in the, the west, you had the government of Tripoli. The government of Tripoli at that time, Mr. Sarraj, uh, was the only one recognized by the UN uh, and was provided support from Turkey and Qatar. The UAE had a, had, a, had a rational, a logic, which was this government is influenced, hijacked by the Muslim Brotherhood. And they considered that Haftar was the um, the strong man uh, that would be able to defeat uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. So they provided uh, military support. Uh, they actually even transferred uh, Chinese UAVs uh, to uh, Haftar. And there was reports that some uh, uh, UAE forces may have been on the ground providing support, but probably very limited. Uh, this was mostly as a proxy war. Uh, that failed in uh, in 2020 because Haftar uh, launched a major offensive on Tripoli that uh, was stopped because of Turkey's involvement. Turkey uh, then uh, deployed its own troops uh, against Haftar. And since then, uh, there has been, I mean, this is a, a very volatile environment. Uh, they are supposed to uh, uh, to have a reconciliation process, uh, but uh, this is still uh, failing until today. 
But since then, the UAE has reduced uh, a lot its uh, its involvement uh, in Libya. Also because there was, at that time, a realization in the UAE that this was uh, damaging its um, public uh, image, that uh, a lot of uh, the, uh, the media coverage on the UAE at the time was on its involvement in Libya, its involvement in Yemen, uh, and the UAE at the time wanted to uh, uh, restore its public image, so reduced its uh, uh, involvement in uh, these uh, in these uh, proxy wars. So I hope I gave you the very short answer. Other questions? Oh, yes, go ahead. Hi, hello. I'm Mike Hellman. I'm in the School of Computing. My question is, a part of the aftermath of the JCPOA, and with historical consideration of the Israeli Begin doctrine, what do you see as um, the role of nuclear technology development in the Gulf as part of their uh, future view of uh, strategic autonomy? Uh, you're talking about nuclear military? Uh, uh, okay. okay. Uh, well, at, this, at the moment, uh, the only... The only uh, nuclear program, which is a civilian program that you have uh, in the region, is the UAE program. Uh, they were able to have this uh, this program thanks to the to very strict uh, provisions uh, from the Non-Proliferation Treaty and the IAEA. Uh, this allowed them to have a U.S. support for that. So they have uh, nuclear plants uh, in uh, the Abu Dhabi Emirates through that uh, framework. It's a, it's, it's a civilian program. And even in the case of Saudi Arabia, which wants or is discussing the idea of launching a nuclear program, they, uh, they are talking, as of today, of a civilian uh, program. Now, you introduced the question of the JCPOA. So I assume you, you're considering your uh, what would be the reaction of these countries if uh, in coming years, coming months, uh, the JCPOA is officially uh, dead and uh, the, uh, the, um, the Iranians announced uh, or there is clear indications that the Iranians are a nuclear armed country. That's uh, the way I understand your, your question. Uh, the, in that case, if we look at history, uh, there are two uh, main options uh, for these countries. Either they go uh, uh, for their own nuclear military program, so trying to uh, uh, militarize uh, their nuclear program and to have their own nuclear weapons. It's not an easy thing uh, because uh, you may probably know about the uh, the fact that the, the level of uranium enrichment you need for military purpose is much higher than the one for civilian uh, purpose. So it it's not something that you can suddenly uh, move uh, overnight. Plus, there is uh, the problem of delivery systems. How do you make sure that you have ballistic missiles that would be able to be equipped uh, with uh, nuclear uh, warheads? Uh, this would probably lead to a major crisis with uh, the U.S. Uh, because if we imagine this scenario, you, you can be sure that the U.S. Uh, will uh, will uh, will oppose that because that's a cascade of proliferation. Because if the U.E. does it, uh, Saudi Arabia will do it, 
and then uh, we can uh, imagine a, a doomsday scenario. Uh, the other option, which may be something that is currently considered, is to force the US to make new security commitments. That might be one of the things that is discussed today uh, between the UAE, uh, the, the Saudis, the, and the Americans. There's talks that the US is discussing with uh, Saudi Arabia a new security uh, agreement uh, in exchange for normalizations of relations with Israel. It may be also because uh, Saudi Arabia is considering uh, the potential of a nuclear-armed Iran. In this case, another option is not to have your own program, your own nuclear weapons, but to rely on the protection of uh, a, a partner. That's what we call extended deterrence, that one country extend the benefits of its nuclear weapons to you. Uh, this is also quite tricky because the US provides uh, extended deterrence at the moment uh, for uh, European countries, but it does so by deploying nuclear weapons uh, on uh, at least four countries in Europe at the moment. The, the trick is, would this mean that the US uh, deploy nuclear weapons? What would be the type of provisions. So in, in any case, these two options, that, that would be a, a major um, game change. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, the Gulf security environment the same way if, uh, if we consider both options. But because if, again, we go back to your question, if uh, Iran is officially considered as a nuclear armed country, it's uh, a major uh, change. I mean, everything is uh, is suddenly uh, on the table, uh, probably in terms of security strategies. Let me just uh, Asif, our colleague Asif Shuja, who's a senior research fellow here. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Uh, thank you, John Lu, for this wonderful book. Uh, in terms of uh, strategic autonomy, you have covered, uh, in fact, two uh, major zones. One is the diversification of resources of military material. Uh, these countries have followed that dictum. The other you have explained about the nationalization in these countries, that's the human resource. I would like uh, you to explain if uh, you have mentioned this in this book, even if you haven't mentioned uh, the, the factor of indigenously developing the military armament within their own countries. Uh, have they gone into that domain? And in that regard, uh, when they diversify their military procurement from US and China, is there any weightage in terms of procuring from China, that it, it helps them in the collaborative development? Is there a, a change of nature of these uh, military collaboration? Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Asif. The, and the, the question of uh, the local defense industry is a key one. Uh, the so they are, uh, in particular, Saudi Arabia and UAE are uh, investing into uh, their own military factories, trying to have uh, uh, their own local uh, products. Uh, the UAE, as I said, is uh, the most advanced one on this. Uh, so the UAE, for instance, uh, the UAE Navy relies for its corvettes on uh, an Abu Dhabi-based uh, company. Uh, the uh, UAE um, uh, ground forces rely for armored vehicles on a UAE uh, company. 
So in some domains, they are able to be self-sufficient. Uh, that's for the UAE, which is more advanced. In the case of Saudi Arabia, uh, or even Qatar, which uh, came later, uh, they don't have that level of self-sufficiency. Uh, the, the problem is that you have to get the, the investment. So the government has to invest into uh, the local uh, industry. It's not just a matter of um, uh, buying. It's a matter of investing into uh, know-how, expertise, knowledge that the local community didn't cultivate for many years. So you have to create an ecosystem that didn't exist. So on some uh, military systems, that's not easy because they, you need sophisticated uh, expertise. So sometimes they rely on uh, joint ventures with Western countries, with Western entities that provide support in the early phases of the project. And then with the idea of knowledge transfer. But till today, this is still relying on that uh, partnership. Um, the role of China is interesting here because the Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, announced that uh, it would build, it would invest into its own uh, UAE uh, production. And to do that, you, uh, Saudi Arabia announced that it would rely on partnership with China. So China... Uh, is uh, is planning, I don't think they open it yet, but is planning to open uh, a UAE, UAV uh, factory inside Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's a similar project that was announced uh, for the UAE uh, uh, last year with regards to, uh, um, uh, to systems, to products uh, uh, in the air domain, uh, mostly for fighter jets. Uh, repair uh, repair uh, items uh, with Chinese uh, involvement. So in a way, uh, China uh, conveniently uh, presents this uh, these partnerships as a way to support the local uh, move towards strategic autonomy. This is the idea of strengthening uh, the Saudi uh, local industry, the Emirati local industry. Uh, and actually, the, the UAV industry, the UAV plant, I think China did that only in Pakistan. Uh, so that's not something they do everywhere. It's, that's quite uh, uh, unique. Um, is, it, is it going to deliver? That's another question. Uh, but definitely, uh, they are on both sides, they are trying to uh, use the partnership with China also through that uh, framework of being more autonomous. Uh, but at the end of the day, and coming back to uh, your initial question, the, a lot of the materials, the systems that they buy from China, they, fir they first buy them because they don't get them from the West. Uh, when, for instance, uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar uh, bought uh, ballistic missiles from China, the first reason was that there is no way the US uh, or UK or France would have provided these uh, ballistic missiles because the ballistic missiles we're talking about would have gone against uh, a non-proliferation uh, commitments uh, of uh, the, the, uh, the US. Uh, and this would have also uh, created a lot of resistance in Congress, probably because of the issue of uh, guaranteeing Israel's security. Hi, I'm Jordan from the Econ Department. So, 
you mentioned that these new military strategies, they're quite costly. So my question is, to what extent are these tied to revenues from natural resources? Well, they are, uh, they are heavily uh, dependent on the, um, uh, on the oil uh, and the gas rent. Uh, the, the UAE is the most diversified economy here. But even in the case of the UAE, the, a lot of the, uh, the income will still rely on uh, the, uh, the, uh, the rent. So in the in the last years we've saw we've seen uh, two trends. Initially, uh, if we had this discussion uh, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, there were uh, indications that defense expenditures would be reduced severely uh, because there was the the fact that uh, time there was a, a huge drop in terms of the rent, in terms of the uh, the income, the public income. But then uh, you had uh, the Ukraine war, and suddenly uh, the, the oil prices went up. Uh, we consider that the, the, government, the governments of, uh, of Gulf states uh, can have a fiscal uh, balance uh, when they have a, a barrel that is about 40 or $60 uh, per day. Um, the... Current, uh, the current uh, price, I think, I checked this morning, is about 87. So at uh, the, the moment, they are in very good shape. Uh, and that explains why there isn't a, a concern uh, for those uh, reforms. Uh, in general, uh, I mean, because you, you can see that in all the domains where they, 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 they are uh, launching a lot of uh, uh, reforms or investments because of this, uh, this rent. In addition to that, uh, these are countries uh, that uh, traditionally uh, were among the biggest spenders on defense. That's the biggest, uh, the sector where the uh, the, the, the state uh, invests the most. Uh, so Saudi Arabia's uh, annual defense expenditure is estimated to be about $40 billion. Uh, the UAE, I mean, UAE and Qatar is a is a different game because they they, they we don't know exactly their uh, their expenditures. They do not disclose the numbers. We can only have a guess, and uh, we know that the UAE would be around twenty uh, billion dollars per year, and uh, Qatar uh, eight billion. But at the end of the, this is still heavily relying on uh, the, uh, the the rent. Okay, let me let me now jump in and ask a couple of. Uh exercise my privilege again as a moderator. <laughs> there are two things that interested me because when I was reading your book, um, you did talk and you did address this again just now in this response, which is the difficulty in getting access to information, right? I think that is probably quite typical across the globe, but I suspect more pronounced in the Gulf um, at a point where I think the countries are rather sensitive about they're spending and what they are actually doing. That's one question. Uh, so it's really the question of how did you, as a researcher, get the information that you needed to get? Because I recognize that even when you do the field work, it's you can't always get the answers that you need. For various reasons, people are not going to respond. It'd be typical, like if you talk to people from our defense ministry here, they will tell you 
they will tell you what you probably get in public sources and they don't tell you much else. They give you an answer that's a non-answer and you don't blame them because, you know, this is a, this has got to do with your country's security. So it's, how did you get the information that you got? Because I found quite a bit in the book. Very interesting. The second is, uh, your last chapter was about Yemen, right? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that because I think in talking about Yemen as, as sort of a case study, so to speak, right, you're really talking about um, how the different strategies and approaches taken by each of these countries, um, some of the limitations were shown up in Yemen. Uh, some of the, maybe what I would call the lack of experience also showed up in Yemen. I'm not, this is not to say that I'm being critical about the countries. It's just a reality that when you start to develop your armed forces, it's a it's an evolving process and it's a continual process. And you see this in armed militaries across the globe. You know that it's a constantly evolving process, and that there are different technologies that keep come, that keep coming up that force you to change. But I think in the case of Yemen, with these three countries, it was really at a much more. It's probably at a more what I would call intermediate level, where the the concerns that they have are maybe not the same concerns that more developed militaries might have. Yeah. So, I mean, the, and the first question is an important one because uh, maybe. Everyone probably wonders how uh, you can can do this type of research uh, in the Gulf or the Middle East, which is probably one of the most uh, sensitive uh, uh, places. Uh, and from the beginning uh, in the book and also in, uh, uh, in uh, the discussions, I explained that uh, there's nothing classified, obviously, in the book. Uh, this relies on... Uh, data which was made public, but it's also heavily relying on uh, my uh, professional experience. As you as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, before moving to NUS, uh, I spent ten years basically uh, working uh, in a military environment uh, as a civilian, but uh, first with NATO, uh, where. Uh, I was in contact with uh, Saudi, Emirati, Qatari officers very regularly. That created a sense of informal uh, discussions uh, that would have not been possible otherwise. Uh, and after that, I moved to, uh, to Abu Dhabi uh, to work uh, for the UAE National Defense College which is in a way an object of the book. It's part of the part of the, the this uh, idea of strategic autonomy, and there, as as well, in a sense, on a daily basis, uh, this created uh, this access. Um, so this honestly would not have been possible uh, if I had done uh, the research. Uh, let's say as a French uh, French PhD, PhD students who travels to uh, uh, Riyadh or to uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, tries for a few weeks to arrange uh, meetings. Unfortunately, this is uh, getting more and more difficult. Uh, as you mentioned, this by nature, uh, defense military affairs are not transparent. There is an element uh, that relates to national security that you cannot uh remove and that uh will always put constraints uh for researchers uh but i think uh combining the public data uh especially for instance on defense industry which is not something that can be uh uh 
can be uh, can be completely hidden. Uh, but also through the interviews uh, and the, uh, the field work, uh, I was able to capture, uh, let's say, the, uh, the the big trends. Uh, again, as I said uh, here, and I, I mentioned it in the book, there are elements that we don't know. Uh, for instance, we don't know the official numbers on the defense expenditures uh, of uh, those countries. We can make a guess, but we don't know. Uh, but that's the case also for China. Uh, that's something we uh, we don't know exactly uh, how much uh, China is spending on uh, uh, its own military expenditures. Uh, so, but to uh, to acknowledge that this is definitely a a, a big uh, big challenge. Uh, before this book, I worked on Israel's foreign policy for the previous one, and Israel for uh, I mean uh, for. Uh, all its uh, defaults uh, is a much easier environment when you're looking uh, at uh, data. Uh, and people in uh, Israel uh, like to talk uh, much more than in the Gulf. Uh, so that was easier, definitely. Regarding the, the your second question, Yemen, and the reason I, I, I wanted to have a chapter on Yemen at the end is almost because it felt like... Um, a Shakespearean, uh, Shakespeare's play. Like uh, you have at the beginning of uh, the story, these big ambitions uh, from Saudi Arabia, from the, those princes. And at the end, you have a kind of humanitarian tragedy, tragedy uh, where you see hubris taking uh, with the, the consequences uh, of their ambitions. Uh, I also uh, found the Yemen uh, crisis uh, remarkable, or let's say, uh, uh, for remarkable for the case study, because initially, so uh, when I was working in the UAE uh, in 2007, when I arrived in Abu Dhabi, I remember in 2016, a lot of the things I heard from uh, US, French uh, uh, officers were very positive assessments. Uh, this was a time where uh, everyone was saying, uh, the UAE is little Sparta. UAE uh, is doing a fantastic job, probably at the same level as the most advanced NATO countries and so on. So a lot of upbeat assessments that suddenly turned sour when uh, the humanitarian uh, casualties increased and when uh, we all realized that uh, the, the Gulf countries were not able to solve the, the Yemen war on the, the battlefield, because from the beginning, the objectives were too ambitious. One quote which I loved uh, is from uh, an Australian uh, general, Mike Hindmarsh, who's a commander. is a former Australian uh, Special Forces uh, commander who moved to the UAE and is in charge of the UAE Presidential Guard. And he, he went on record explaining that Yemen was the Vietnam of uh, the Gulf states. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a, it's a perfect analogy uh, because in some ways, uh, the Gulf states lost their innocence in Yemen. I mean innocence in the sense that they had not been involved militarily before the, uh, with uh, that type of operation. They realized the uh, extreme difficulty of intervening in, on a, in a foreign country uh, for many reasons. The public cost in terms of the public relations, how this damaged their image internationally. 
And it's also interesting for the analogy because after Vietnam, the U.S. military went through a soul-searching moment where it was about what would be the next uh, doctrine, what would be the next strategy. Uh, is the U.S. doomed to fail? Uh, that was a, a huge uh, um, self-reflecting moment uh, for the U.S. society as well as the U.S. armed forces. And I think the biggest unknown now, especially for Saudi Arabia and UAE, is will they have this self-reflecting moment, this soul-searching moment where they consider Yemen, they look at Yemen uh, with open eyes and try, even if it's a very painful process, to uh, uh, go through the lessons learned process that uh, will be necessary if they want to go uh, to go ahead uh, with uh, their military reforms. Thank you. Um, any, any other? Yes, Aisha. Um, uh, so uh, congratulations again, Jean-Luc, uh, on the book. And uh, thank you very much for uh, a brief overview. I didn't read the book. Um, so, and also I don't have a background uh, on defense, uh, but your talk was so informative. Uh, I'm going to build on the point on the uh, dependence on the oil revenue for, for the Gulf countries. So I know like your book is assessing the current situation, uh, but my question is uh, more of the um, uh, long term. Um, so, um, you know, the, the economies of the Gulf uh, re re rely heavily on the oil revenues. And there are too many concerns, uh, including the uh, fluctuations in the oil prices, but long run also uh, climate change also playing uh, a role. So it's... Uh, it could be a factor also to reduce the depend, uh, the uh, demand for the oil uh, in the region. So, and the Gulf countries uh, do understand the importance of the economic diversification. So, my question is, what do you think uh, maybe the best strategy of reform for the Gulf countries are to ensure long term, you know, uh, national and regional security? Well, uh, <laughs> the. The, what would be the best uh, solution for their uh, their military reforms, or more generally uh, for their national security uh, interests? Okay, uh, because that's let's say that it's it, it's a bit different in the sense that if they have uh, huge ambitions like uh, self sufficiency, it has a cost. So uh, the let's say that if uh, if the uh, these countries uh, want to be more uh, independent in their foreign policy agenda and want to uh, uh, create more distance or uh, from the U.S., uh, they have to invest into these uh, capabilities. Uh, typically, uh, on defense industry, they they have to. The the interesting argument I heard, and that you can see actually in their vision uh, documents, Saudi vision or the UAE vision, is that the, the investment on the local defense industry is also part of the diversification of the economy, that this will also uh, prepare the post-oil uh, era. Um, I'm not entirely convinced by that argument, uh, first, because as I said, it's a very expensive uh, initiative, uh, I mean, it, to invest in your uh, in your own uh, industry, and it, the return on investment is not uh, guaranteed. Uh, plus, at the end of the day, they still rely 
on public customer. The, the, the customer of those systems is the government. The UE has ambitions to export. So they argue that, for instance, they are, they, the, the, the Corvettes that they build, they can now sell it, sell them uh, to uh, uh, other uh, countries. And that could uh, create a return of, on investment. But we have to see if that can really deliver. So uh, the, 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 your question is uh, challenging because the, um, if they want to be more ambitious, they have to uh, invest more, and uh, this may uh, this may create friction with uh, their level of income in coming years. You may have a different view and consider that they should be more realistic. Uh, and some countries, actually, I mean, I, I talk about these three countries, but uh, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman uh, have. Uh, in a way, uh, a less ambitious uh, foreign policy agenda. Uh, Bahrain has not this uh, this uh, delusion of uh, having its own foreign policy because Bahrain uh, is heavily dependent uh, on uh, economic uh, support from the other countries. Uh, Kuwait has the, the, the economic uh, resources but remains uh, very uh, quiet. Uh, it, it, stay, it sticks to its traditional foreign policy. Uh, this may be also because the leadership is not the same type of leadership than in those three countries. Uh, but at the end of the day, if the, the, the answer is heavily dependent on the way they, they consider their national security interest. And in, in the three countries, they consider their national security interests more and more involves their ability to decide by themselves. Uh, so meaning that they want to be able tomorrow to uh, go to Beijing, uh, to Moscow, without uh, fearing any punishment uh, from uh, the US. So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> OK, if there's no more questions, let me, let me thank Jean-Luc for talking continually from 4.30 till now. Um, I'd encourage you all to, to get the book. It's really, it's quite an interesting read and it's really quite thoughtful. Um, I'd say a few things in concluding. I think what you see from this book, and I think, I think Jean-Luc probably shares this sense, which is that uh, they have set themselves now on a path that they're not going to revert. They're going to keep moving forward. The question is the perspectives and the ambition. I think increasingly they will realise what many of us in Southeast Asia have realized that only we are responsible for our own defense, you know. Um, and if you're not prepared to look after yourself, uh, you're not, uh, no one is going to come to your, your assistance, you know. And I suspect that the that these three Gulf states have, have started to realize that. Um, um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that they want to have some level of autonomy. Um, and um, have become a little bit more assertive about their multilateral arrangements. Um, you know, uh, they also have to face a new reality of a much more transactional America, where uh, you know they have not moved their fixed assets. They're still in the region, right? But uh, they are less engaged than they may have been prior to all this. Maybe because existentially, this is not a real threat for them. You know. Um, 
I think if you if you if you we only look to the Gulf states, but I think if you look at Israel, you will see that they are facing a similar conundrum. Because, uh, you know, I mean, I think essentially the Americans have said you all must take more responsibility for what goes on in this region. And I don't think that's an unfair perspective to have. Uh, you know, you talked about Vietnam and I think Vietnam was a searing and traumatic experience for the Americans in this part of the world. And a lot of changes in our history in Southeast Asia occurred as a consequence of that. So... I hope Yemen doesn't turn out that way for them, but I, I do think that the path that they've set themselves on is not a path that they will uh, easily uh, pull back from. I think they will keep moving forward. How they do it and the direction they do will be interesting to see. So let me please join me in thanking Jean-Luc. Uh, and I want to thank all of you for making the effort to make the trek all the way here in this really rotten weather to come. <laughs> <laughs> for this talk. Um, I hope you will join us at uh, subsequent uh, events. If you're on our mailing list, you'll probably get all the mailers. But please join me once more in thanking Jean-Luc. Thank you, Jean-Luc.